Well, if you would, open again to Psalm 122 in your Bibles, if you have one with you today. Psalm 122. We read this psalm earlier in our service. We'll sing a version of the psalm later in our service. We studied it last week, and now we come back to it again for a second week. As I explained last week, this psalm is uniquely rich and multi-layered. It's like a large, clear diamond, and when you shine light upon it, it radiates in all directions. It refracts out. So last week, for example, we considered Psalm 122 through the eyes of King David, its author. 2 Samuel 5 through 7 gives us the historical and theological background to the promises that David is celebrating in Psalm 122. Or for example, last week we considered Psalm 122 through the eyes of Jesus, the son of David, how he is the fulfillment of the city of Jerusalem and the temple within it. The city, Jerusalem, in the time of David and the temple that his son built, those were glorious and they served their purpose. And that purpose was primarily a foreshadow of something far greater than buildings and cities. So now God's plan no longer centers on a place, but on a person. Jesus is God's new temple, and God's presence and priesthood, the sacrifices, the payment that's made for sin, peace with God, all of that is wrapped up in one. All of the promises are yes and amen in him. So we don't go to Jerusalem to get to God these days. We go to Jesus to get to God. King David marveled and exalted and praised God for what it meant in his own day. But he couldn't have imagined how glorious and grand God's plan would unfold And so we didn't even have time last week to consider all the reverberations of Psalm 122 in the rest of Scripture. So what is perhaps the most relevant application of Psalm 122 is what we've reserved for today. From one angle, Psalm 122 is a song about the church's mission. A song for the church's mission. The word church isn't found in these nine verses of Psalm 122, but that's where the content of Psalm 122 is going. That's where these themes are leading, or really have already led. The themes of God's people happily seeking God's presence together for his praise and seeking peace with and for one another. These themes are as relevant for us today as they ever have been. So Psalm 122 helps us to reflect on who we are, what we're called to do, and why. Later in our service today, we will officially send off 75 adults and their kids to form a new church, Christ Church, a church plant which will meet in downtown Albuquerque. Let's let Psalm 122 shape and inform our sending this morning. Let's let Psalm 122 shape the going for those who are going. Let's let it shape our church and its identity and its relationship to other churches. Psalm 122 
directs us in three primary ways. First, to pursue God's presence. Verses one and two tell us to pursue God's presence. David was glad when they said to him, let us go to the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is the tabernacle and later the temple. It was the place of God's presence and hence the place for his worship. Of course, God was back then everywhere and he still is. Heaven and earth cannot contain him. But God at times reveals himself specially. In some places and sometimes in certain ways, he reveals his presence for his own purposes and for our own good. So like in Psalm 87, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, that's Jerusalem, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. God loved Zion, Jerusalem. He made it for a time the place of his presence. But as we've been learning or relearning in the New Testament, the special presence of God gave way to the person of Jesus. It resided in him. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And even more than that, the special presence of God not only gives way to Jesus, but also to his people. To his people who believe in him, they become temples for God's presence. Listen to 1 Peter 2, or even turn back there if you want to keep your finger in Psalm 122. 1 Peter 2, listen to this. Verse 4, as you come to him, that's to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, temple language, you see, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, the cornerstone will not be put to shame. Rather than be put to shame, you'd be a chosen race, Peter goes on to say, part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter says, the people of God are the place for God's presence. Christians were made to go together. Christian make, God makes Christians into bricks and bricks were made to be stacked brick upon brick to make up a wall, and a wall to make up a house. We were made to come together. Individual Christians can go to God and pray to God and praise God from anywhere 24-7. You don't even have to partner up. But we were also called to meet together on the Lord's Day as we've done this morning to celebrate the resurrection, to confess that ancient gospel, to confess our sins, to encourage each other, to sing God's praises and to acknowledge his presence among us. So like brick upon brick, building and building and building, he's building his church. Listen to Ephesians 2 in light of this. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens inside the city with the saints and members of the household of God in the temple. 
A new temple, though, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he's making the temple bigger. He's adding to it. He's expanding it as he adds to it. He's making it purer. He's purifying. He's cleaning us up. He's making us into his dwelling place more and more. So let's be very clear here. No church building is the house of the Lord or a house of the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ isn't made with stone or studs or or stucco. The house now is applied to people, living people. And we go to the house of the Lord when we come together to each other like this. Life upon life is stacked, brick upon brick, building the temple together for God's special presence. And when we do this thing, coming together as we have this morning, God manifests his presence in a way that he doesn't when we're simply alone. No matter how good the praise track could be, no matter how good the sermon on the iPod we listen to might be, there's something special about the stones coming together to make up the temple of the Lord. And so you can understand why David back then still would say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go. I mean, just think about what's going on there in verse 1. There's invitation and response. There's mutual encouragement. There's gladness in going. There's gladness for worship, eagerness for God's presence. There's excitement, anticipation, longing, togetherness. You can feel it sort of crescendo and grow as it feeds off one another as the saints go to the house of the Lord. How sweet that is. And if David can say in sing verse 1 like this, then how much more should we? David couldn't have imagined the further glorious realities that we have come to know. His mind would have blown up if he had read 1 Peter 2 or Ephesians 2. He knows it now, but so do we. How much more should we say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go. Are you glad when someone says on a Saturday night, tomorrow we go? When someone says four o'clock on a Wednesday, the last Wednesday of the month, tonight is the Lord's Supper, let us go. Is your heart stirred with excitement? When you wake up on Sunday morning, is there a, a happy anticipation to meet with the saints like this? Are you awake enough to even know what you're feeling or thinking? This is second service, so that applied more to the first, I suppose. But (laughs) you see how Psalm 122, it really gives us countless points of application if we think about it. We don't all need these things, but they may apply to any of us from going to bed early to getting here on time to the way we speak about going to church, maybe especially in front of our kids? Do we say to our kids, no, we can't do that Sunday morning because we have 
to go to church? How do you speak about what we're going to do as you drive to church? Do you pray in preparation? What's your mindset when you approach those glass doors out there, when you enter in and sit down here? You see, Psalm 122, verse 1, doesn't give us rigid rules about any of that, but it does give us a holy and happy example that speaks to all of that and much more if you'll take the time to think about how to apply it. Verse 2, David says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now that could be something that's said even before arriving into Jerusalem with these pilgrims on their way. It could be, they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I said, oh, I am already there. My feet are as good as there. Let's go. That's anticipation and excitement. It's as if he can imagine being there if he's not there already. Or perhaps he's there and he's looking around. Our feet are now in the gates Hebrews 12 comes to mind as a New Testament equivalent. Listen to this. This is what we already have. This is where we already are, Christian. Let it blow your mind that you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You're already there. Into innumerable angels in festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And you have come to his sprinkled blood. You're already there. Oh, we'll get more of that in a new heaven and new earth. When the Lord returns, yes, we'll be with angels more then than we are now. But though we can't see it now, it's true. It's there. We're already seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians tells us. So this is a meeting with heaven. However imperfect you are, however distracted at times we might be, whatever our own inadequacies in preparing and in accomplishing corporate worship together, this is still a moment where heaven and earth kiss. So a hearty awareness of Hebrews 12 and its behind-the-scenes look of the heaven realities that Christians are privileged to enjoy, that would squash petty preferences for corporate worship if we took it seriously. It would drown out our empty, thoughtless ritualism. It would wash away legalism about having to go. It would mock our culture's obsession with individualism. And it would bid farewell to a consumeristic approach to church. Now, I know all those things are still out there. They're still in here. They're in our hearts. It's in our church. We're all, at times, in various ways, ritualistic or legalistic or individualistic or consumeristic in our church. But a hearty awareness of Hebrews 12 would help those things lose their power. And many worldly and selfish thoughts would begin to vanish. 
If Hebrews 12 tells us about the unseen realities, well, Hebrews 10 tells us about the more practical and visible terms involved in corporate worship. You see, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, so we should draw near with full assurance of faith and let us hold fast the confession with our hope without wavering and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together. Meet together. Strategize about how to stir up love and good works. Come together. Come and keep coming. Let us grow in our appreciation for the church and its worship. Let us grow in Sunday morning anticipation and excitement. Let us grow in the faith to believe what we don't feel when our worship seems half-hearted or simply going through the motions. Let's be willing to exhort those brothers or sisters who seem to start to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Let's be a church that frequently says to each other, let us go. And then we say, I was glad when they said, let us go. Isn't there also an invitation here for, well, for us to invite non-Christians to come along. In the New Testament, the meeting of the church is primarily for the church, but apparently non-Christians were permitted and it was even beneficial. Have you invited someone recently to come on a Sunday morning? And if you think, well, there's some things that are said and things that are done that they won't understand. Well, if nothing else, think of inviting them and sitting with them in corporate worship here as an opportunity to talk with them afterwards about maybe one or two things alone. Maybe the things that they didn't understand. And maybe every now and then, we'll invite someone to come to church with us. They'll hear the preaching of the word. They won't get some of it. They'll get what's most important. And then 1 Corinthians 14 will happen. An unbeliever or outsider enters and here's, here's the whole process microwaved. He's convicted. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Perhaps that would happen even today by his grace. Secondly, Psalm 122 tells us to celebrate God's people. To celebrate God's people. Look at verse 3 an exclamation. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. That's a celebration. In David's time, Jerusalem, the city, and the people were in some ways one. And David seems to be purposely blurring the lines between city and people because the city, he says, was bound firmly together. And so architecturally, or in city planning terms, that means it was, it was designed, it was purposeful, it was compact, it was busy, it was secure. But this is the city to which the tribes go up. Tribes. There's diversity there. Diversity and unity in the city and among these people. The tribes were all Jewish, but they were diverse. They had their own accents, their own styles. Some were farmers, some were ranchers, some were coastal fishermen. 
but they came to the city. And like the city then, they were bound firmly together to give thanks to the Lord their God. Bound firmly together. That's a phrase in the Hebrew that we find early on in our Bibles. Back in Exodus 26, God gave instructions for the building of the tabernacle and then specific instructions for the curtain that would block the entrance to the Holy of Holies. It was going to be made up of ten curtains, different linens, different colors, different yarns, blue, purple, scarlet. And then we read, five of these curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Same Hebrew word as Psalm 122, bound firmly together. God's people are to be a beautiful, diverse tapestry. Does this ring any New Testament bells for you, Christian? Diversity and unity, such as 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, just as the body is one, human bodies, and it has many members or parts, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. There's diversity, but there's unity. So look around this room. Uncomfortably, look around this room. Look at actual people. You see different colors, different sizes, different ages. We know from conversations, different nationalities, different stories, different backgrounds, different places of birth, certainly different preferences, different NFL teams. We have many differences, but we share Christ and we share in God's worship. We're like the tribes who go up once or twice a week to give thanks to the Lord because this is what he decreed for us. That's our bond. We could look around this room and notice oddities, things that are different than us that stand out to us. You could get to know people in this church and you'd start to meet some wonderfully strange people. But if you look again, if you look with the eyes of faith, you will see the church of the living God. You look at that guy and you can say, he's part of the chosen race that's in Jesus Christ. That guy, he's one of the royal priests who are doing the sacrifices of worship in the house of the Lord. That woman, well, she's God's own possession. She's bought with the blood of Jesus. Some people talk about their preference to meet with God alone, maybe in the woods or on a mountaintop. And we should, of course, marvel at and give thanks to God for his wonders in creation. But saved, worshiping people are actually the first fruits of a whole new creation. That's what we should see when we look at each other. And so it's much more enjoyable. It's much more rich to worship with you this morning than it would be for me to worship next to a tree in a bullfrog. That's amazing, 
Bullfrogs are amazing. Trees are amazing. But God's saving work is incredible. The more we get to know each other, the more powerful this experience is. Not only to know the stories of our own conversion one to another, but to know stories of suffering and perseverance. To have wept with those who are weeping. To struggle in prayer for one another. To have laughs, countless in number. You just can't beat that. There's nothing like it. To see a couple sing with tears, it is well with my soul when you know they lost a child in the last month or when the adoption didn't work out or when there's a foreclosure. To see a man who lost his job sing with tears, you give and you take away, but blessed be your name. I mean, that's some powerful stuff. And this is what we have. This is life together as the church. I don't know about you, but this is weekly affair for me. This is what binds us firmly together. Not just various experiences of suffering, but the truth of God and the promises of God and the plan of God and the experience of God and the worship of God with the ups and downs of life, with the joys and woes of life. A couple years ago, we started hearing in the news about the invention of atheist churches. Did you hear about these? I guess they're catching on. I think one started in London. Some atheists now meet together to sing and to encourage. Someone gives a talk about how to do life better, how to be encouraged. They get a sense of camaraderie. And there's a sense of identity, of celebrating together. I've seen pictures, the celebration like this, yeah. And what are they celebrating? What are they celebrating? Well, community is a desire that is completely natural. It's deep within all of us. It's, it's irrepressible. So who can blame them? Some people identify with and get community from the Kiwanis Club or a car club or, or Facebook or, or a sport team in, in some can now get it with other atheists. But the church of the living God is so much more than a club, so much more than an event, so much more than a meeting. It's not self-help with a little bit of religious text to it. It's the family of God. So I ask you, are you bound firmly together with one of these families we call a church? Are you bound firmly together with brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you at one time, are you now, consciously and overtly identifying yourself with a body of believers that plans to encourage each other to keep on in the faith and to do the things that Jesus told us to do? 
Some people talk about attending church like it's a movie or a wedding that you go to or a funeral. But we're actually to be the church, not just go to church. Some people these days like to make the circuit around several churches in a town. If there's a new exciting worship leader there, they might go there. If a a new series, perhaps in the book of Revelation, is starting up over here, well, then they're there. They're here. But we should celebrate God's people as people who are bound firmly together with others. And what that means then is, in part, that we won't be so cynical about church. We won't be so pessimistic about each other. Yes, the church is made up of sinners and the church is imperfect. The church will let you down and there's nothing else like it on earth. There is no greater institution for you to give yourself to than this. There is no greater cause than the cause of Christ in this world and the spread of his presence among his people who will give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is why David was so glad for God's presence, for God's praise, but also for God's people. You can imagine an Israelite in the Old Testament days arriving in Jerusalem and having a different response than the one David described in Psalm 122. Maybe he would exclaim, Jerusalem, oh, the crowds. Jerusalem, oh, the noise. Jerusalem, I can't find my way around this place. My hotel's a dump. But David said, oh, Jerusalem, built as a city, bound firmly together. It's where the tribes go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. You hear the optimism there. Not cynicism, optimism, encouragement, celebration. It was there that thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And what does that mean in verse 5? Thrones for judgment were set. Well, in David's time, this had to do with the promises that God gave to David for his throne and his kingdom. Those promises were set related to David's throne. But it also had to do with David's ongoing ruling. He ruled in justice and equity for the people, we were told in 2 Samuel. That's what's meant here by thrones for judgment. He had to make judgments. He would decide things for the oppressed. He would punish those evildoers who were doing the impressing. Well, this still has relevance for us today, even though David is long gone. Because the true and final son of David has come. And he is on his throne. He is the chief shepherd. The promises of God have been fulfilled. And God's judgments or his promises, his word, his laws, they've been spoken And this Jesus still speaks today through his word. The people of God have always been and still are today. They they should always be people of the word. So David said, there where the thrones of judgment were set and where people got their word from the king, so with Jesus. We today celebrate his word. We are eager to hear him speak 
And we're here today to walk in light of what he says, of the judgments he has made and the paths he's carved out for us. So let's celebrate God's people. Celebrate their unity and diversity and their beauty. Celebrate what God has done in them. Celebrate that which he calls us to, to give thanks to him. Turn away from cynicism and pessimism and fight to rejoice in what's there and what's there behind the scenes that we can't see yet, but it is there. Let us be rightfully optimistic about the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building his church with or without this church. This church could go away tomorrow. You do know that? In Jesus' church, in his throne, would not be threatened in the least. He, he will have his way. He will advance his kingdom. His kingdom will come. Some of you were members of a very large church not long ago that disintegrated in about a month. Churches come and go. Desert Springs Church may be here hundreds of years or one. Christ Church, our new church plant, may be planted and thriving for hundreds of years. It may not, but we rest upon Jesus' grand global promise to build his church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. And what a privilege it is when he uses us. What a privilege it is when a church gets to be around for a number of years. And when a church gets to, to do a church plant and, and then a second when a, church plant, when a church gets to raise up missionaries and send them over to North Africa, what milestones we've had, what blessings the Lord has bestowed upon us simply by his grace. What a privilege it is. We're to pursue God's presence. We're to celebrate God's people. And thirdly, we're to seek their peace. Seek their peace. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I'll say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I'll seek your good. Now, peace, back in the days of Psalm 122, meant peace within a city, peace on the inside of walls and towers a fortified city is a frequent phrase in the Old Testament. It was a big deal. Get a city, put up walls, keep the enemy out, stay inside. That was God's plan for a time. Now for us, it's the complete opposite. We are not to fortify ourselves in a Christian city or bubble ourselves up from the world. One of the first things I did when I came to this church is I found this stack, stack of shepherd's guides. Ever seen these? These are Christian businesses. Christian businesses. You get these little booklets in churches, and uh, you could go, oh, Christian barber. Oh, Christian drywall guy. First thing I did when I got here is throw those away because we do not want to wall ourselves up from others. We're to go out. I'm not saying don't have a Christian barber. I do. But I'm just saying there's a great opportunity to sit with someone who's not a Christian, uh, you know, every couple of months and, and talk while they cut your hair. 
And you see, we have a Savior who went outside the city for us. Hebrews 13 tells us this. Just as Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek that city which is to come. That's where the pursuit of peace must start, with Jesus who is our peace. He is what makes for peace. It must start with Jesus and what he did on that cross, on that hill called Golgotha, outside the city walls of Jerusalem that fateful day. When he died there, he wasn't just dying. He was paying for sins. He was bearing the Father's wrath. We're not by nature at peace with God. We must go through him to get peace with God. He bore our lack of peace with God in order that we might have peace with God. As it was stated back 600 years before Jesus even came. The prophet Isaiah said, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's our chastisement that he bore for us that we might have peace. You believe it? That's how you receive it. You receive it by faith. So in Romans, we read that we've been justified, forgiven, declared righteous by faith. It's through faith. We simply believe it to receive it. And by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have that peace? You're counting on some other kind of peace? You just tell yourself, peace, peace, this too shall pass? Where do you go for peace? In this world, there is no lasting peace. It's not on either side of a wall. It's it's primarily, first and foremost, with God through Jesus Christ based on what he did on the cross. Believe that today. Receive that mercy. Be reconciled to the God that you and I have rebelled against until he came a-calling. And then he not only forgives, but he also changes and redirects us. And now we can actually be part of that mission of going with Jesus outside the gate for the peace of others. We're to pray for the peace of the church. Pray for the elders of the church. Pray for those who are suffering and are spiritually weak, whether you know them by name or just in, as categories. Have you forgotten to be praying for the church? I know there are many things to pray for, but oh, how the church needs your prayers. Your brothers and sisters need your prayers. Your leaders need your prayers. We need to pray for revival to happen in places like this where it's pretty easy to be a casual Christian. And we need to pray for the global church in those places where persecution is so severe. Pray they don't buckle. Pray they don't give up their confession of Christ no matter the cost. Pray for the furtherance of the gospel in our city. Pray for boldness and opportunities for the gospel for your brothers and sisters. Would you pray that we keep getting along and we don't just rest and presume upon last year's and the year before's peace and love? Encourage peace. Don't just pray for it. 
I will say, peace be within you. Bless others. Affirm God's gifts and his grace in them. Seek peace. I will seek your good. Resolve to seek peace. Resolve to make peace. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Don't be easily offended. Love covers a multitude of sins, not least aggravations. Resist gossip. Flee from bitterness. Seek the church's prosperity. It says, seek your good. Prosperity, I'm afraid, is a word that the TV preachers have just ruined. They equate it with health and wealth and glitz and glam. But, oh, there's a biblical kind of prosperity that we should be praying for. Pray that the gospel would flourish. Pray that we would flourish as a church. Pray that we in Christ's church would seek the good of the city, first and foremost through the spoken word of the gospel, but also through changed lives that show forth the glory of God that others hopefully will see. Well, this is our song. This is the church's mission. God's praise and his people and his peace now isn't about place, but a person and his people. That makes church planting possible because it's not about place. In fact, because it's not about place anymore, church planting is necessary. We're, we're supposed to keep multiplying and keep spreading out. We say as a church, we're spreading God's glory broader and deeper. And one of the ways we spread it broader through global efforts like that in North Africa or down in Guatemala or on some Native American uh, reservations. And, and sometimes it's through the planting of another church. God's praise and his people and his, his peace is now about not about buildings. It doesn't matter whether it's this size of a building or, or where Christ Church will be renting their facilities in some actually very fancier digs than what we enjoy here. And it doesn't matter if someday the government takes our building from us. We will not stop being the church. We will not stop in any way or one little bit from being family. You might have wondered as we talked this morning about celebrating God's people as a family why we would plant a church from this family. Why break up the family? I mean, we love each other. We get along. Why would, why would we do that? Because families are supposed to multiply. That's what they do. We need more godly families in this world and in the city. That's why we're making babies around here and adopting other ones and then sending them off. Like arrows, they're supposed to be shot out. It's not supposed to be the case that sons and daughters stay home forever. I might be a year away from a daughter going away to college. I don't know what that's like yet. Let alone marrying a daughter off to another man. I, I can't imagine how hard that would be. It'd be hard. It'd be sad. I might be asking, why? And I know I'll be needing to preach to myself that it's right. It's what you do. It was the plan all along. 
I recently came across an account of church planting efforts among Baptist churches in the U.S. back in the 1800s. This old Baptist history book by Cox and, and Hobie, they tell about two churches. One was rather large and crowded. And then, quote, the second was formed in September 1831 by a friendly withdrawment of 70 members. That was their word for church planting before they came up with a better word or phrase, church planting. That would have been better, but here's a funny one. A friendly withdrawment of 70 members for the purpose of forming a new church. Instead of being held in union by mere selfishness, churches, when they've attained some prosperity, voluntarily divide in order that the cause may be enlarged. A new church is constituted in friendly connection with that from which a number of members secede. From this, another emanates, and yet another, till four or five or more multiply in gratifying succession. I can wish nothing better for other churches than they should emulate this generous, self-denying, and benevolent plan. And of course, it must be said, if it wasn't already assumed in that quote, that it's not just benevolent and self-denying for those who are sending and staying but even more so for those who are going. They leave a home church that they've known, in some cases, many years or decades, to make a friendly withdrawment of 70 or so members that the purposes of the kingdom would be enlarged. Well, Desert Springs Church was once a church plant. That's one of the reasons why we are pro-church plants. Desert Springs was once a church plant led by a pastor named Paul Kemp. Paul Kemp now pastors in Austin, Texas. In a providential winding of things, Paul Kemp's church now supports our church plant. Isn't just marvelous? Hope Church here in town, pastored by my good friend Josh Swanson, who's preached here before, they decided to give us $10,000 for our church plant. Why? Who are we? Why would God do that? God's kindness and direction and provision has been all over these plans and these people. In the days ahead, we'll continue to hear of how he led and provided and directed leading up to this moment of a church plant. And in years ahead, I pray for many years to come, I believe we'll hear of God's redounding fruit in Christ Church at Desert Springs, at Hope, and in Albuquerque. So for those who have funded this church plant and for those who are going on it and for those of us who are sending them, let us all say from 1 Chronicles 29, who are we that we should be able to offer all this to you so willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given. For we are strangers and sojourners. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. Oh, Lord, our God, all the abundance that we have and have given comes from your hand and is all your 
own. Would you bow with me and join me in praising God for what he's done? Oh, Father, we thank you for your grand plan to bring us to yourself through your Son. We pray for your help to seek your presence with great joy and to encourage others to join us in it. Help us to seek your presence with your people and to love them, to marvel at them and with your people and for your presence, Lord. Let us celebrate and stand upon your glorious promises of old and those which still await fulfillment. Let us pray for the peace and the prosperity of churches in our city, nation, and around the world. Let us seek peace together and pursue it. Help us, Lord, to be willing to go outside the gate to join a Savior there who is already on mission. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek that city to come. Help us with all of these things, Lord, and all of these plans and all of these people for your namesake. Help us to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.